You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. After the hurricane hit Miami in 2037, a foot of sand covered the famous bowtie floor in the lobby of the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami Beach. A dead manatee floated in the pool where Elvis had once swum. Most of the damage came not from the hurricane's 175-mile-an-hour winds, but from this 20-foot storm surge that overwhelmed the low-lying city. In South Beach, historic Art Deco buildings were swept off their foundations. Mansions on Star Island were flooded up to their cut-glass doorknobs. A 17-mile stretch of Highway A1A that ran along the famous beaches up to Fort Lauderdale disappeared into the Atlantic. The storm knocked out the wastewater treatment plant on Virginia Key, forcing the city to dump hundreds of millions of gallons of raw sewage into Biscayne Bay. Tampons and condoms littered the beaches, and the stench of human excrement stoked fears of cholera. More than 300 people died, many of them swept away by the surging waters that submerged much of Miami Beach and Fort Lauderdale. Thirteen people were killed in traffic accidents as they scrambled to escape the city after the news spread, falsely it turned out, that one of the nuclear reactors at Turkey Point, an aging power plant 24 miles south of Miami, had been heavily damaged by the surge and sent a radioactive cloud floating over the city. The president, of course, said that Miami would be back, that Americans did not give up, that the city would be rebuilt better and stronger than it had been before. But it was clear to those not fooling themselves that this storm was the beginning of the end of Miami as a booming 21st century city. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. Jeff Goodell is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. His books include How to Cool the Planet, Geoengineering, and the Audacious Quest to Fix Earth Climate, which won the 2011 Grantham Prize Award of Special Merit. Goodell's previous books include Sunnyvale, a memoir about growing up in Silicon Valley, which was a New York Times notable book, and Big Coal, the Dirty Secret Behind America's Energy Future. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you for having me. You know, for me, I think this book really brought home the idea that the reality, the physics behind climate change, it's measurable but it's not mutable. The human reaction to those physics is both measurable and mutable. And that's the the core problem that you examine in this book. It's happening. Climate change has arrived, and you take a on a world tour. (laughs) Right. Uh, Talk about designing your world tour to look at where sea level rise was affecting human civilization right now. Well, you know, uh, this book started um, after Hurricane Sandy hit New York. Uh, I w- wandered through the city. I wasn't there during the when Sandy hit, but I was nearby, and I came back to the city afterwards. And, you know, there was a nine-foot storm surge that came into lower Manhattan. And um, I was thinking about this and about how to write about this, and I was wandering around the city, and you could, you know, just the incredible chaos and... Um, you know, uh, vividness of, of what water can do to a city was very evident there. And I was talking to some scientists at Columbia, and they said this is an interesting, one way to think about this is as an interesting sort of 
dry run for what sea level rise will look like because nine feet of sea level rise is kind of what the high end is for what we might see by the end of the century. And just imagine if that water came in but never went out. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And um, it, it began this sort of process for me of thinking about what sea level rise means, what the implications are. Uh, I went down to Miami. Uh, I saw that in real time, Miami is already um, being inundated during king tides with the high tides every every year. I wandered around the streets of Miami where there's you know these million dollar condos and up to my knees in water, and um, I really understood the implications of of this for coastal cities and, and what this means for um, places around the world. Um, when I decided to do the book, I went to places like Lagos, Nigeria, where they um, live in water slums on these houses on stilts. Um, I went to places like the Netherlands, where they've been walling off water for thousands of years. Seventy percent of the country is um, below sea level, and how they manage that. Uh, I went to Venice, um, of course, the great water city, to look at the problems there they're having with flooding and how they're trying to protect the city. Uh, and I really tried to um, think about what it means that we're in this time now where this line between, you know, where the water and the land meet is changing fast. And um, for, for coastal cities, this has profound implications for uh, how we live and where we live along the coastlines. And that means not just... Uh, you know, New York and Boston and Lagos and ne- the Netherlands, but also right here in the Bay Area. You know, um, one of the things that struck me that you wrote is that you say the tricky thing about dealing with sea level rise is that it's impossible to witness by just hanging out at the beach. And I think that's really important because we can do something about sea level rise, but we just can't see it. So that disinclines us to do this. And I was thinking about uh, smog. When I first moved uh, from Northern California to Southern California, we lived in a little place called Covina. There were mountains that were like about six miles away. We could not, I did not see those mountains for a week because of the smog. And I didn't even believe my mother that you could see them. (laughs) And then they kind of came out and I go, okay, I guess they are there. In the time since that, since my childhood, that problem has largely, it's not completely clear, but it's much, much better due specifically to legislation and human action that changed the way how much stuff we're putting out there. And that's because we could see it. We can't see climate change exactly, but what your book does is take it to where it is happening right now, and that's so important. Right, right. I mean, it's one of the hard things to grasp about climate change is that the um, it's fundamentally different than problems like air pollution, like you talked about. I mean, I remember grew, I grew up in Sunnyvale and remember looking at the mountains in San Jose and seeing the same thing, the kind of gray band of, of pollution. And then, you know, we passed legislation, we put catalytic converters on cars, and we solved a lot of this problem. But climate change isn't like that because um, the carbon dioxide that we're putting in the atmosphere stays up there for thousands of years. And the warming that we've done already to the planet is already building up in the oceans. And um, so no matter what we do, we're still going to have a, a lot of change coming our way. And sea level rise is emblematic of that because sea level rise is something that even if we you know, cut carbon pollution to zero tomorrow, which we should do, and I hope that we do for many reasons, um, the amount of, of heat that's already built up in the planet means that we're going to see a lot of melting of the glaciers in, in the Greenland and Antarctica, and the seas are going to rise. So this is a problem that we're going to have to deal with one way or another. 
if we cut pollution, air, uh, carbon pollution quickly, we can maybe slow the, the, the pace of the rise and maybe the ultimate height of it, but we're going to see it. And so this is a, um, the reason the book is called The Water Will Come is because it will come. It, this is not speculative. This is as real as gravity. And how we grasp that because as you said, you can't go to the beach and just watch the water. You can't like spend two <laughs> weeks on the beach and just like watch the water rise. So it really challenges our thinking about how we are going to live in the future. But it, but as you said, it's it's happening now. I can go. You go to Miami Beach and you walk on the beach, and or along the streets of Miami Beach, and you know you can be knee deep in water on high tides. I went to Norfolk Naval Base, the largest naval base in the world. And, you know, the streets were flooded uh, at, the, at the naval base. The military is thinking very hard about this. Uh, you go to Galveston, to Texas, to the Gulf Coast, uh, you see it, you know, many low-lying areas already, and it's just going to get worse. One of the things you were talking about, uh, the tides, and this is kind of a problem for us to wrap our brains around because tides go up and down. The sea level changes apparently all the time, and so it's hard for us to understand this, and the reason I think that you point out that the reason we're able to understand this now, especially really understand and confirm it now, is the new technology, the satellites that you talk about that have that have just gone up recently that really nail this down and take this out of the speculative realm and into the fully confirmed this is happening now realm. Right. I mean, the you know, the, the science about... Uh, the melt rates in the great ice sheets is getting better and better, and we're seeing it happen. I mean, you can go to on the web and Google, you know, Arctic sea ice and see lots of animations about this. Uh, the sea ice itself is not the is not the the issue with sea level rise. It's the actual land based glaciers in Greenland and and uh, and Antarctica. Um, but but you know, it's it's not a speculative idea. We know that as the temperature of the Earth rises, and we know that it is rising. We know that that's related, that that's caused by the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. And, and even, I mean, every, my, 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 you know, 14-year-old daughter knows very well that if she leaves an ice cube out on a picnic table on a hot day, it's going to melt. <laughs> and that's basically what's happening. I mean, the physics are not complicated. If you raise the temperature and you have a lot of ice, it's going to melt. And it's going to melt faster the higher you raise the temperatures. And that's basically what's happening. And as these ice sheets melt, the sea levels are rising. And but the scary thing that's really uh, important to grasp that a lot of that, that I'm trying to underscore with this book is that we we think of sea level rise even if for people who kind of understand these basic physics as some sort of long slow climb. It's like okay maybe they'll rise a few inches in the next decade, you know we'll deal with it. It's it's a problem that's far off because we can't see it when we go to the beach, but history tells us. Looking you know um, scientists who study the Earth's past tell us that sea level rise um, moves in pulses, that there are times in the Earth's past when we have great pulses of sea level rise. And it's not a linear thing. And one of the things that scientists are very concerned about now as we put all this heat into the planet is um, uh, that we could be facing a, a, a kind of pulse of sea level rise. We could get you know, several feet even in a decade, uh, depending especially what happens in West Antarctica. You talk about the uh, the Aborigines who have uh, legends about sea level rise and, and how fast it took them. I think this is really interesting to look at it, um, sea level rise in terms of ancient human storytelling and in terms of myth and magic, too, because we all know about the story of Noah's flood. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating that the the oldest stories ever told, both orally and written, are both about flooding. 
Um, I found some linguists in um, Australia who have been tracking uh, Aboriginal storytelling and kind of uh, correlating it with changes that they knew at the end of the last interglacial when the seas rose pretty quickly. And they've studied this a lot and, and, and basically determined that, you know, these stories that have been told by Aboriginal culture over 10,000 years, and they have a particular, culture has a particular kind of fact-checking way with, with relatives and stuff to, to make sure that these stories don't get sort of mutated. It's an amazing kind of cultural phenomenon in itself. But that these stories, these Aboriginal stories, actually talk about what it was like when the seas came in over the Great Barrier Reef, creating the Great Barrier Reef and things like that. And similarly, the oldest written stories um, are about floods. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, which was you know written in a from Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian uh, tablets, um, which is the basis for the story of Noah, is also about flooding. So it's 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 this this question of the water coming and what the water will do, and this question of, and, and the idea of flooding is a very deep deep. Um, human experience that is, you know, uh, elemental to our time on this planet and something that we're, that we are um, sort of deeply conditioned to um, think about, that it's been part of our world. And for some reason, in, like many things in, in, in the modern age, we've forgotten that. We think that because we build hotels and roads along the coast that they're going to stay there and uh, the, the coastlines, and they're not. Coastlines move and change, as anyone who lives on the coast knows. You talk about some of early remarkable feats of human engineering, the Calusa Mounds. Are, I was kind of astonished to read about that. I've never heard about them. Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time uh, in Florida for this book because Florida is arguably the most vulnerable place in the United States for sea level rise because most of South Florida is below six feet above sea level. And so as the waters rise, even a, a couple of feet, uh, there's going to be massive amounts of inundation there. So I, I, I spent a lot of time there. Um, and I learned, and I, and I, and I, I, through talking to scientists and things, I learned about these coastal tribes that had lived there for thousands of years and, and built these shell middens. Shell middens are a very common thing for hunter-gatherer societies around the world, but they're basically shell mounds um, along the coasts of, of Florida. And I went out and visited them, and they were a great example of a, um, a, a, a what we would, some people would call a primitive culture, although, there, of course, there are many ways they were not primitive. They had a, a very elaborate kind of structure for living with water. They had these mounds they, uh, that they built their houses on, you know, the same reason that people elevate their houses now, but they had, you know, elaborate kind of waterways, a kind of primitive Venice, um, and that their homes and these middens, which were built from moisture shells, basically, um, were flexible. I mean, they could raise them and lower them. You know, they, they were adaptable. They understood that coastlines moved and that they, they didn't put railroad tracks down and they didn't build Fontainebleau hotels and they didn't, you know, imagine that what they built was going to stay there forever. And that's because that's the essential problem is that we've built all this stuff on the coastlines uh, and, and now it's vulnerable. Well, as you as they say about Venice, it's been there for a thousand years. You expect it to be there for another thousand years when uh, the However, what you make very clear is that the fact that it's been there for a thousand years is to a certain extent an illusion. Totally. So because of what we're doing 
the way we're pushing the climate system and the, as a result of all the CO2 we're dumping into the atmosphere, you know, the, the past is not really an analog for the future. Mm. We're creating a new world here. And, you know, it's been called the Anthropocene because of the influence of man on it. And that has many, many implications. And, you know, one of those implications the, in the broadest sense is that this new world that we're entering into is changing fast. And scientists can outline what those changes will be, you know, changes in hurricane intensity. We've seen some of that already changes in droughts, in water, in, in precipitation patterns. Uh, obviously, everyone in California has thought a lot about that and a lot of experience <laughs> with that. Uh, and, and sea level rise. So, we, I mean, these are all kind of factors that we know are going to happen as the planet heats up and as we enter this new climate range, a realm. But we don't know exactly how fast it's going to happen. And that's what's sort of scary. Um, you know, scientists tell us that you know, there are these threshold points where the, the, the climate system doesn't move in a progressive way, but sort of jumps to a different state, uh, a, mm-hmm. a, a kind of leap to an entirely different climate state. And that is the scary scenario that we're courting as we continue to dump more and more CO2 into the atmosphere. Now, the the man behind many of our discoveries, uh, Mr. Keeling, uh, Charles David Keeling, tell us about the Keeling Curve. Well, the Keeling Curve is arguably, I would say, the most, um, I, I, in this book, I try not to deal with a lot of charts and graphs and data and make it as, as human a story as I can. But I would argue that the Keeling Curve is the most important kind of chart or graph or data point for you know, like human civilization right now. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, a, it's true. That's I mean, really scary. Well, but it's true. I mean, uh-huh. it, it's only scary because of the, what the curve is doing. Um, the, the, the Keeling Curve is, uh, since the late 50s, they've been studying the, the concentration of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere, which is the measurement of how much, obviously, of how much CO2 is, we're releasing into the atmosphere. And um, when they started in the 50s, it was in the low 300s, and recently it's gotten up to as high as 410 parts per million. And so this curve has just, um, what's the reason it's, frightening is this curve has just been exponentially growing higher and higher and higher. And it's just been getting, uh, the, these numbers are getting bigger and bigger, meaning that this concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is just increasing and increasing and increasing. And I say this because, as we all know, there's been a lot of efforts in, in California and in many places to curb carbon emissions. That you know, We think that we're making progress. And we, you know, more and more people are driving Teslas. And more and more people are thinking about how not to cut down rainforests. And more and more people are, are, are buying renewable power and putting solar panels on their roofs and all of that. And that's all good. And that's really, really important. But what the Keeling Curve tells us is that it's not enough, that we're not doing anything to kind of bend this concentration ratio down. And that's what's scary. As a writer, one of the things you're trying to do is to bring home this story. You're trying to make the visible, the invisible visible. And one of the ways you do that is with fantastic, a single sentence can make a huge difference. Let me read one. Eugene Domack, a geologist at the University of South Florida, was one of the last human beings to see the Larson B. ice shelf on the Antarctic Peninsula. That's a scary thought. <laughs> Explain why that's scary. Well, because, you know, so he, you know, the, the Larson Ice Shelf was a um, ice shelf in, in Antarctica that sort of famously collapsed a few years ago. And, um, you know, it's, it's evidence of um, 
how fast our world is changing and in ways that are sort of irrevocable, you know. Um, uh, so he was there to do some ice science, to do some studying. He was trying to understand how, how fast these glaciers are melting. And he didn't really have any idea that this ice shelf was going to, you know, essentially disintegrate in, you know, m- a few months after he left and that he would be the last person to see this. And, you know, talking to him, you know, that he, he's certainly a man who understands that our, our world is changing fast, that these enormous ice shelves that can are hundreds of miles across can just sort of break off uh, and drift off into the into the sea. I mean, the ice shelves themselves are are not the problem in a way because they're already floating, and so when they break off, they don't really raise the sea level. It's, it's that they act as kind of corks to hold back these big ice sheets that are on the land and are beginning to slide into the ocean faster and faster. But, you know, during the book also, I, when I was in Greenland, I was there with a scientist named Jason Box. Oh, I love him. He's a really interesting. <laughs> you do great characters, too. So, oh, thank you. you know, tell thank us about Jason. Well, Jason's a great guy. He's a, a, an American scientist. He sort of a, grew up as a sort of punk rocker kind of bad boy, <laughs> had troubles in school and never was, you know, and, and, and sort of found himself as a, as a glaciologist. And... Um, Jason and I got along really well, and he invited me to come up to Greenland with him. He was studying how, and this is very relevant to what's going on today, how how um, ash from wildfires and from uh, power plant emissions uh, drifts up over Greenland and falls on the snow and changes what's called the albedo or the reflectivity of the snow. As everyone knows, if you wear a dark shirt on a hot day, it's hotter than if you wear a white shirt because the white shirt reflects away the light and the heat. So what's happening in Greenland is as we have more and more wildfires, as we continue to dump pollution into the air, that soot settles onto the ice in Greenland and it accelerates the melt. And he was up there trying to figure that out, uh, how what Im- impact that really has. And we were, and he, you know, like all scientists, he, um, you know, moves around in a glacier, in a, in a helicopter. And, you know, helicopters are like taxis up there. You know, you just jump in a helicopter and you fly off to somewhere on the ice sheet and um, we were flying along the face of the Yakubshavan Glacier, which is, as I call in the book, the Kim Kardashian of glaciers, because it's like the sexiest, the fastest moving, the one everybody wants to see, the, all the paparazzi follow it everywhere because it's falling into the into the sea at such a high rate. And Jason saw this like piece of bare ground near the Yakubshavan Glacier, and he immediately, you know, yelled at the or hit the shoulder of the helicopter pilot and said, "We have to land there. We have to land there." And, and we brought the helicopter down and we got out and Jason christened this new climate land because it was the first time this patch of bare ground had been seen by sunlight in tens of thousands, if not more, years. And it was just this very vivid uh, and kind of um, thrilling in a weird way feeling of standing on this piece of ground that, you know, was new and that no human had ever been to before. The, this patch of ground had not been seen in, in by sunlight since humans have basically, you know, began civilizing the planet. So, you know, you had these moments like that, that these, these sort of epiphanies about how fast things are changing and that, you know, this notion that our planet is in a kind of stable state is a very dangerous myth. It's as if... Uh climate change is a slow-motion nuclear war, slowed down by a factor of maybe 10,000, but no, just as destructive nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it is very destructive, but it's 
it's it will be destructive of things that um, you know. Uh, I mean, in this case, with sea level rise of of, of coastal infrastructure of things mm. that can't move. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I I don't uh, underestimate the sort of destructiveness of and the challenges of climate change and what we're facing. But I'm also uh, one critic called this book strangely optimistic, and you know, I I actually am optimistic. I I actually do think that. You know, embracing these changes and thinking realistically about it um, will allow us to reinvent our lives and to think about things in new ways. It doesn't mean that cities like Miami and other places are going, aren't going to have enormous devastation and problems with this. But I think, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book is to, you know, encourage people to think ab- about their lives here in new ways. That that we will. I mean, I don't think. Um, you know, this is going to be four horsemen of the apocalypse. But uh, but but I think that, you know, we're going to have real big changes in our world. And the sooner we start to address those changes and, and you know, get over the notion that if we all just drive Teslas, we'll be fine, uh, is really important to understand. I, I like one of the places you visit that is a really good example of this is in Ni- Nigeria, the the floating slums and the floating school, I thought was just, it was brilliant. And, and it shows that these problems can be dealt with by changing our perceptions of what's important to us. And also, you know, is having a, a solid place all the time important? Maybe less so than being having a place you can rebuild quickly or move around, move. Exactly. I mean, going to Legos was so inspiring to me because... Uh, for two reasons. Um, one was, I mean, the reason I went was I met this um, Nigerian architect who had built a floating school there. And and when I say a floating school, you might think of some big thing on pillars and stuff. It's not. It was just like a bunch of oil drums lashed together with this sort of uh, kind of uh, teepee-like structure, two-story teepee-like structure above it. It was very simple. I don't know how much it cost, but it wasn't very much. And, but he's a brilliant architect, and and it was an example, and and this was incredibly sort of um, uh, the the people who lived in these slums in Lagos, you know, loved this structure. It was, became the kind of community hub, and it really showed about how um, you know these simple changes, this simple kind of creativity that don't require lots of money or anything, can have a big impact. But what was really inspiring about going to Lagos was that. You know, I spent, you know, there's like 300,000 people who live in these water slums that are just basically squatters. And they live on these basically, you know, platforms that they've built over the water that are these, you know, built on stilts and and a kind of shack that they build above it. But they were so great. And when I went out there to talk to them, and I spent like a week basically living out there. And, you know, I asked them about sea level rise and storm surges, and they were like, we don't care. We'll just build our houses a little bit higher. And we're already living on water, so if the water goes up a little bit, it's okay. You know, and they were – it was like – you really understand that it's it's because of the way we've chosen to live, that we've chosen to build strip malls along the water and roads along the water and all this sort of infrastructure. If we think about living with water in a different way, it can be really wonderful. And, you know, these Lego slums are slums, so they're not wonderful in the kind of common way of thinking, but they're wonderful in the sense that people live there at great harmony and peace with water in ways that they have wonderful lives. They, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously they're very poor. They don't have wonderful lives in the sense of, I mean, they struggle with things in the way that everyone who's living in that kind of poverty struggle, struggles with. But in the sense of 
living with water, they it's wonderful. They move around by boats. They fish. You know, they they have structures that are very adaptable. And I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from places like that. Uh, I thought that that they also what you're saying they've learned to live with it. This gets to the real nut of this problem, which is the human psychology. And one of the places, think an attitude you encounter in a lot of places in this book is people who have lived in their homes. They like where they live. They don't want to move. They figure that until they die, that home is going to be pretty cool. And so, you know, why deal with it? And I think that the impediment that you're pointing out here is it's within us. It's not, it's, the solution isn't as much technological as it is psychological. I think that's completely, profoundly true. I think that's a very deep point that is true about climate change broadly and true about um, this book also. I mean, look, I'm very, uh, I understand, I love my home. Mm. I, I, I understand uh, what it means to love your place. And I, you know, I grew up around here. I spent a lot of time at the beach, you know, I made out with my girlfriends at the beach. You know, I had special, lots of special moments along the coastline. And I, and I understand that, you know, places mean a lot to people. And I spent a lot of time for this book on the Jersey Shore, where you have a lot of working class people whose grandfathers built houses, you know, with their bare hands, and they go to va- as vacation places every summer. And the idea of losing those places is is awful. And so, I don't. I, I understand why people would like to deny that this is going to happen. But the physics are what the physics are, and you know, we're doing this. We're we're putting this CO2 into the atmosphere, and one of the consequences of that is that we're going to lose coastlines. And that's just a simple truth. And how we think about that, how hard we try to hold on, how, how much we, we learn to let go. I think that climate change is going to be a lot about learning to let go of a lot of things about how we live. And, that, and it's like, almost like breaking up a relationship or something. At the end of a relationship, it's, it feels very tragic. But then if, as you move forward and you rethink things and you realize that you build new relationships and you think about things in different ways. And it doesn't mean, you know, the sort of end of human civilization. It means the end of strip malls on the beach, which is a different question, right? That's a different thing. Uh, maybe less tragic. Right. I mean, they, yeah. I mean, there's a part of this is like, well, maybe the water is going to wash away a lot of dumb stuff and we can do a better job next time and we'll learn from this and we'll you know, build more creative, more interesting communities along the water and 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 that people love living on the water and that's not going to change. Well, it, one of the things I think you do a great job is you take a little detour and point out, the, you know, the beginning of seashore culture, which was uh, our, our, our current kind of American westernized beach culture, which was uh, brought to us by a bunch of sick Brits. Right, 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 right. I mean, you know, and, and beach culture is is a, a lot about this. I mean, the the you know the founding of of Miami Beach and the whole kind of vacation culture down there, and the whole um, uh, you know go down there and forget your problems. And that's one of the I mean, one of the things I talk about when I talk about Miami, particularly trying to deal with this issue, is that you know people go to the beach not to think about problems or the future in in this kind of way but they go there to forget they go there to party they go to there to have you know their honeymoons they go there to escape 
not to escape reality, not to deal with reality. <laughs> so no, and it's exactly, it's, and it's true, and yeah. and it makes it harder for these beach communities to deal with this because. People are like, I didn't come here to deal with problems. I have enough problems back home, you know, in my other, this is especially for second home communities, right? And this goes for not just Miami, but many places. It's like, I didn't, I come here to look at the sea, to think deep thoughts, to have time with my children, to have time with my families. I'm not here to like contemplate how we're going to restructure the coastline because of sea level rise, you know? <laughs> and so but it's, but it's a culture that makes it difficult to think about these problems. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a kind of double complexity here. Oh, you were talking about uh, the ice sheet, the um, Kim Kardashian of ice sheets, and one of the things that the scientists said is that uh, that that event showed us how much scientists and we don't know about what's going on. And one of the points you make is is that the difference between three feet and six feet um, of sea level rise, which we don't know what we're going to get, is the difference between a manageable coastal crisis and a decades-long refugee disaster. Let's talk about a refugee disaster in the United States. That's going to change the political map. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you can see kinds of outlines of beginning of the kind of implications of that just with Hurricane Maria and what happened in Puerto Rico and the you know exodus of Puerto Ricans to the mainland and how that will shift you know, politics in Florida and in New York and, and other places. But, um, you know, we've talked so far a lot about, you know, sort of economic impacts and real estate and houses and things like that. But, you know, the the sort of larger consequences of people beginning to move away from coastlines and having to move away from coastlines, you know, broadly, globally, but also here in the U.S. I mean, it's already happening. You know, I mean, I know many people in South Florida who are deciding to m- sell their homes. People uh, in the Gulf Coast after Harvey are, are leaving. They're realizing that, you know, they're just going to have to deal with more and more flooding, more and more of this, and they're having to get want to get away. And as property values start to spiral down, uh, as this the sort of reality of this sinks in, more and more people are going to leave. They just are. And where are those people going to go? And what is the, you know, kind of political implications of that? I mean, you could argue right now that the refugee crisis broadly uh, it, uh, elected Donald Trump. I mean, it's that fear of the outsider, of the person who's coming from somewhere else that is is the reason why we're putting up walls everywhere, right? And in this case, it's around the idea of terrorism. But, you know, there's a lot of fear and suspicion and, um, you know, this sort of displaced people. The military understands this very well. I mean, the military, I spent a lot of time with the military for this story at Norfolk Naval Base and other places. They understand very well that climate change is an accelerant to conflict. And one of the things that's most deeply, uh, I'm most concerned about with this is the way that as coastal communities around the world and in the United States get displaced, that that's going to lead to more conflict, more fear of the outsider, more, you know, I have mine, don't come here and try to grab my piece of the pie, you know, that kind of thing that we're seeing a lot of in America. And that goes back to your point about the sort of psychological aspect of this is how do we how how will we embrace outsiders how will we embrace strangers you know the marshall islands for example the island pacific island states so they're they're already planning migrations you know and 
Marshall Islanders are lucky enough that because, you know, they have this thing called the Right of Free Compact Association, they can come to the United States. But many of these islanders can't. And where are they going to go? And Australia has a, you know, big fear of these islanders coming into Australia. And they're already having all kinds of, you know, immigration Know, rules and laws and things that are that are happening there. And so as these walls go up, not just to keep the water out, but to keep the people out, the political implications of that are enormous. You mentioned walls going up to keep the water out. You have an interesting discussion about different kinds of walls. And this goes to a lot to our solutions to this because the problems of that we're facing are so enormous that by the time we've developed a solution, it's already technologically obsolete. So that makes us disinclined to even try to attack the problem. And so talk about the the difference between just throwing up a big old wall to keep the water out and a wall these uh, like they are working on in Venice where they go. <laughs> right. <laughs> so maybe working on, we don't know what that is. So, so the, the, the idea of building walls is, is like right now the most controversial aspect of all this that is playing out in real time right now because mm. um, even after these storms uh, that have, we've these hurricanes that we've had you know a lot of coastal communities along the Gulf and in Florida I was just down there looking at this are really accelerating the building of walls because they think that that will give them some protection and in some cases walls can help protect particular pieces of property and things. Um, but they're problematic for many, many reasons, which I talk <laughs> about in the book. Um, among them are, are the fact that they can cause worse flooding in other places right around you. So if your neighbor builds a wall, if you're on the coast and your neighbor builds a wall, he's going to push the water into you. And so your neighbor is helping you flood by building a wall. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is like what the the naval station Norfolk is facing, which is this is a giant arm, a naval base with 75,000 people who work there, and it's at the heart of the, you know, kind of American military uh, operations. Six aircraft carriers are based there. And, you know, they're facing serious flooding there, and they can build a wall. They have, Pentagon, of course, has tons of money, and they can build walls around the base and do all the things to make it a fort, fortify it against the water. But it doesn't help if all the roads coming to the base and all the people who live in Norfolk <laughs> in that area are underwater and are flooded out. And the railroads that bring the materials and the armaments to the base can't get there because the railroads are underwater. So the, the Navy is faced with this idea of, okay, so we can build our wall, but what about everything else? And how, how is that going to impact our operations? And it's the same thing with the cities. So some places, walls make real sense. Like the Netherlands, they've built walls that have, you know, dikes, you know, that have helped keep the water out. After Hurricane Sandy, New York City is going to build uh, what they call a, a wall with amenities. They don't want to really call it a, a – uh, they call it a barrier with amenities, not a wall. But it's basically a wall around lower Manhattan, most valuable real estate in the world. Uh, that kind of makes uh, – there's a kind of inevitability to that. But for many places, um, you can't build walls. And even if you can, there's all kinds of political complexity about who's behind it and who's not. You know uh, – you 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 cut off the your your uh, coastline from the natural world in every way, and so and then there's always the question of what happens when the when the wall falls apart or collapses, and so walls are very problematic. And you mentioned Venice, 
In Venice, they're trying to build a wall, a kind of fancy wall. <laughs> it uh, sounds like something out of Jules Verne or something. <laughs> well, they call it the Ferrari on the seafloor. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that does much, much good, too. <laughs> yeah, so they've spent 25 years and $5 billion designing this wall, this barrier that goes up and down. Uh, it disappears underwater when it's not necessary. When there's a big storm surge or high tides, it comes up. Uh, to protect Venice. But the problem is they only engineered it for about a foot of sea level rise. And so it's going to be obsolete very, very soon. They spent billions of dollars on this. And and ultimately, it's not going to protect the city. And the water will come even, even if it were higher, the water will come around it. So in Venice, they're faced with the notion of uh, basically building an entire fortification completely around Venice and turning it into a cutting the lagoon completely off from the ocean and, and turning it into basically a lake, uh, you know, a kind of Disney Venice, you know, a fake Venice uh, um, around the entire city. And that will cost many billions of dollars also. Um, so, so walls are not a sort of easy fix for anything. Uh, one of the things that I, I found interesting was this, this kind of pragmatism that is uh, arising when you live in a a, a a climate of climate denial, as it were, but you're absolutely faced, you know, your real estate value is going down. So talk about this. You have to do something. And I, I think the economic consequences of this are, are going to be big motivators. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I think that the economic consequences are not only going to be big motivators, but also happen, happen soon. I mean, one of the things that South Florida, Miami in particular, and many mm. coastal communities are most concerned about is, you know, even now already, but even and, and with incrementally inches more of sea level rise, you get more and more high tides, higher and higher tides, which cause problems with beach erosion, cause problems with road erosion, cause problems with more and more flooding of streets, more and more interruption of commerce, more and more water into people's houses. And so real estate values start to go down because people start to realize that this is not going to get better. This is going to just get worse and worse. And as property values decline, tax base declines at exactly the moment when the city and the state and the county need to spend more money to, to build protections and to, re, to replenish the beaches and to build seawalls and fix the roads. So it, it becomes this sort of tailspin of economic kind of decline. And that's what um, a lot of coastal communities are very, very concerned about and is already happening in places um, like Miami Beach um, and other places like that. So, um, you know, these communities are going to be forced to deal with this anyway, whether they believe in <laughs> exactly, climate yeah. change and sea level rise or not. And that's, and that's, again, why the book is called The Water Will Come, because this is, I'm not like speculating here. This is, uh, uh, sea level rise is as real as gravity. It's something that is exactly is, alre is already happening, and um, uh, so having to deal with it is not something that you can choose to believe in or not. The economics are real. Nobody likes falling down, but we can't put pass a law that says gravity doesn't work <laughs> right, unless right. I unless I want it. To. Right, right. <laughs> um, you were talking about the military. Uh, one of the reasons that they're so concerned is a lot. They have a lot of real estate at risk, and they are very aware of the security implications. And when they need money for this, they have to be very careful about how they ask for it. 
Yeah, it was interesting. When I was, I went to uh, Naval Station Norfolk a couple of times, and and um, one time I went out there with then Secretary of State John Kerry, and um, I was on the. It was for the two hundred fiftieth anniversary of the Marine Corps, and we were on the bridge of of a battleship, and and he asked the commander of the base, you know, how much time the space has left because he was very well aware of these risks of sea level rise. I mean, it was flooding while we were there. And the commander of the base said, you know, 20 to 50 years. And, and that was an amo- amazing moment to hear the commander of this base telling the secretary of state that within as soon as possibly 20 years, this enormous base is going to either have to be relocated or, or something. But while we were there, uh, I noticed, and others did too, uh, that they had built several new piers. Um, and these new piers were significantly like a, about six feet higher than the old piers. <laughs> and so I, I asked the base commanders about this. I said, you know, did you build these piers higher because you're thinking ahead about sea level rise? And he basically said to me, yes, but we couldn't say that because if we said that, we would have gotten zeroed out of the our Pentagon budget because Congress would not have approved any kind of adaptation for sea level rise. So they had to pretend that it was for other reasons because they couldn't say that because of the you know the how um, climate change has become this sort of unspeakable thing in American politics, uh, certainly in Congress uh, right now, and so they're playing this game, you know, and um, it's really frustrating because as some of these na- naval guy commanders said to me that you know we deal with the world as it is, not as we want it to be. They understand very well what's happening with climate change and sea level rise. They see it all the time. It's at the center of their operations and planning for the future and conflicts in the future. But they can't really talk openly about it because it's become such a taboo in American politics. Let's talk a little bit about American politics. It's taken a turn for the worse so far as uh, climate science goes. And in fact, in uh, the news as recently, I think, as yesterday, uh, America is now left as the only standout from the climate, uh, the Paris Agreement. Um, so talk about how, and you also wrote a book on big coal, which I think must have prepared you in many ways to write this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, coal is the dirtiest fossil fuel and, you know, the sort of, um, you know, you know, the sort of most important thing that we could do to reduce CO2 emissions would be to get rid of coal. Uh, and, we're, and in America, we're doing a pretty good job of it. But the problem is the rest of the world is still burning a lot of it. But, you know, politics, you know, the, the politics has obviously changed in America in very profound ways, uh, and especially around climate change. I mean, I was in, I went to Alaska with President Obama uh, in 2015, and uh, had a, it was an amazing trip. He went there in the run-up to the Paris Climate Accords uh, to try to draw attention to the risks of climate change and to talk about and build momentum and political support for the Paris Climate Agreement. And um, it worked. Uh, he, had, he and Secretary Kerry had done a lot of work to bring the Chinese into this. The Chinese kind of, uh, you know, were supportive of this. Paris uh, Agreement happened. I was there. It was an amazing moment. You had this sense that you know, well, maybe the world is kind of getting it together and has realized this risk that we're all on this planet and we all need to do something about this. And after all the nonsense of all these negotiations for decades, finally the Chinese, the 
India, United States, we all stood together and said, this is a serious problem and we're going to do something about it. And I mean, people in the hall when the gavel went down were actually crying. I mean, it was such an emotional moment for all these people who had spent decades trying to put this kind of international climate agreement together. And of course, now we know that after President Trump was elected, who has basically talked about climate change as this hoax perpetuated by the Chinese and has a, brought in a EPA administrator who's done everything that he can to promote the use of fossil fuels and roll back all of the Obama uh, regulations and executive actions that have tried to uh, you know promote the use of renewable energy and deal with climate change. It's sort of this sort of weird, terrible back to the future kind of world that we're in now. And you know, I think that you know the world, besides the United States, is moving ahead, and that much of the Paris commitment will be fulfilled by other nations. Um, but it's really significant that the that the United States, which has always been not only just the sort of you know biggest economy in the world, but the moral leader on this, who's really spoken out and really tried to bring these coalition of people together to of nations together to deal with this problem is now bailing out. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, the states like California, of course, Governor Brown is doing amazing work. Um, other states, New York, Washington, cities around the country are stepping up. Uh, uh, I met with some entrepreneurs last night here in Silicon Valley, and, you know, they're very determined, and it's all the, the technological progress that's happening is very encouraging. But, um, as President Obama said when I was in Alaska with him, this is the one issue of all issues where there's such a thing as being too late. And, you know, the problem is, is that this world is changing fast. And if we don't deal with this, you know, quickly, rapidly, we're going to, our, we're creating a world for our kids and our grandkids that's going to be radically different than the world we live in now. It's, it will be a state change, as you say, the 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 phrase tipping point comes to mind that we're we're reaching a point as you say where change becomes uh, ex- exponential. I remember many years ago uh, I was a fan of electronic music and there's a album by a fellow named Vangelis uh, called Albedo Point Three Nine, <laughs> <laughs> which was the Earth's albedo. I guess back then uh-huh. it, it's changing now, and I think that uh, the 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 thrust of your book with the focus on how we need to change, the change needs, uh, as they say, change comes from within. And so talk about um, kind of your journey. Um, You saw a lot of really kind of scary stuff. You put yourself on the forefront of, you know, scare the science um, as uh, dystopia and apocalypse, yet you you do have a positive attitude, I think. And it's clear, even when you're re- reporting on kind of the scariest aspects of that, that must be a difficult writing chore. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, as I say in the book, I, I really think of myself as a, um, my, I'm a journalist and my goal is to, you know, kind of tell the truth. And people ask me, you know, where is your hope? And, you know, wh- what can you tell me that's hopeful? And, you know, and I've, as I mentioned earlier, I, I do think that we're going to embrace change and we're going in this changing world and there's going to be a lot of new things that, you know, 
are created out of this and we'll think of new ways of living on the coast and things. But fundamentally, I don't, uh, my job is not to imagine the future so much as to tell the truth about what's happening now. And uh, that's what I try to do um, uh, in this book. Um, but it is, a, it is a difficult thing. You're telling a true story about the future, right. which and is so, really, and, and that's and an so, interesting bit. That's tough. Right. And it's, and it's also tough um, walking around places. Many of the places I went are places that are going to be gone or going to vanish. You know, everything from, you know, South Beach, the beautiful Art Deco structures on South Beach and the whole culture there to, you know, the Naval Station in Norfolk to, you know, Venice. Uh, all these places are, are going to go away, more or less. And... Um, you know, that's a. We're not used to thinking that way. We 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 understand that you and I have a limited time on this earth. That's the nature of being human. But we're not used to thinking of cities and places of ha- as having limited times. We like to think, oh, Miami is going to be there. It was there before? It's going to be there for my kids. And so, in a way, knowing that it's going to go away has been just as knowing that you will die and that I will die gives. A vividness to this moment, into conversations, into our lives, into our experiences, and we look at the sun and we feel the sun, and 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 if we were, you know, we know that this is all passing because we are passing, and I feel the same way now when I walk in Miami Beach, is I I see the vividness of it and I see it clearly and I embrace it and I love it and it's and it's this is a very strange thing to say, but it's the truth. It's made my experience in these places better and made made the world more alive to me and and for that i'm grateful you have achieved some of the psychological change that that we need to see the rest of us need to wrap <laughs> our brains around or particularly those of us who are leaders um how do you think that the science the politics of this science are going to play out because right now science has become very politicized. Reality has become politicized as far as that goes. I mean, we we can't get anybody for every expert on one side. There are two experts on the other side, and then somebody else pops up. It's a game of whack-a-mole. Well, yeah, but you know what? Um, that's what it looks like right now, and because you know the Trump administration is basically the sort of medieval fiefdom where <laughs> they don't believe that science matters and. Mm. Um, uh, for all the you know talk about it, they they just are doing everything they can to undermine science. But science wins. I mean, you know, you you can't ignore the law of the laws of gravity. You can't ignore the basic fundamentals of science, and that's the way our world is structured. Um, you know, it's it's there. It's in the the laws. These physical laws are immutable, and so you know. I was very encouraged just the other day. The uh, it was on the front page of all the major newspapers and things. Was of the National Climate Assessment uh, was just released, which is this sort of congressionally mandated assessment of the latest science about what's going on with climate change. That Congress um, instituted this four-year assessment, I think, in 1990, and it's been coming out every four years since then. And you know, it was released day before yesterday, and the the Trump administration. A lot of people thought they would not release it or they would try to subvert it or something. And they didn't. They just they just put it out there and ignored it because two reasons. One is they don't care about science. They don't think anybody else cares about science either. 
And but also they knew that if they fought it and if they tried to you know squash it, it would cause a big hubbub. So they just put it out, and it's an amazing report, and it's in, in, it, it it inspires huge amounts of hope because it's incredibly clear. It's science doing its work. It's telling the truth. It's digestible. It's it's clear. It's easy for anyone to read, even though it's 600 pages long and nobody's going to read all 600 pages, but the highlights of it are clear. But it's basically scientists saying, we're doing our job. You know, all this nonsense with what Trump is going on, we're still here. We're thinking about this. We're writing this. We're doing our job. And I found it sort of incredibly sort of inspiring um, in, in a way that, you know, um, science is not going away. And we, we, we're not going to legislate it out of action. And, you know, this was evidence of that. The new book by Jeff Cadell is The Water Will Come. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.